Ah, good evening, everybody. We are here in part two of uh, of patterns in Jewish history, and um, this evening we'll be dealing with the topic of uh, let's say messiahs and pariahs, where real the goal is uh, false messiahs throughout Jewish history, and there has been no shortage of false messiahs throughout the history. So, in fact, if you go uh, you go Google false messiahs Jewish history, there are hundreds. Now. Where we're going to focus our uh, our time on is predominantly on those that many of them you do know, some of them you don't know, um, but um, all of them came in one of I suppose two models: one, the individual, and two, the messianic movement, which didn't necessarily focus on an individual, although there may have been individuals that are associated with that in time. So, uh, perhaps by way of introduction, the concept of a messiah is something that we never see anywhere in the Chumash. In fact, you go, the, the Chumash um, it leaves a number of things absent, which you would automatically assume would be in there, but aren't. For example, heaven. The concept of the world to come is never mentioned once in the Torah. And the concept of a messianic redemption, the concept of Jerusalem, and the concept of a temple, none of these things are ever mentioned in the Torah, at least not explicitly. So the idea of a messianic era, which we hold almost as one of the cardinal, you know, according to the Rambam, one of the 13 Ikare uh, Ibuna, one of the fundamentals of faith, um, is that we believe in a messianic era, is something which is not entirely clear, or at least it's not in any way evident within the Torah. You have to go into the book of the prophets where there are allusions to a time where things will be better. So throughout the book of Yeshayahu, Isaiah, where it talks about the concept of the lamb lying, the lion and the lamb, uh, where the nation shall not uh, lift sword into nation, they will beat their, plow, their swords into plowsheds, etc., etc. Those ideas come in the book of the prophets. But the large majority of the prophets allude to a messianic era but don't necessarily describe it in very clear terms because the prophetic writings are by and large prophetic, uh, not only prophetic, but poetic. So, you know, we're going to say, one day the Messiah is going to come and this is what the world is going to look like. And because no one does that, there's no clear consensus within any rabbinic theology exactly what a messianic era will look like. So, so much so that will a messianic time be spiritual or will it be purely physical? Is it going to be a time where the whole world will somehow become Jewish and, and, and grab the corners of our tzitzit and march to Yerushalayim? Or will the world continue more or less as it is with very little changing other than perhaps the knowledge of a, of a singular God within the world? So those opinions are, are so varied that when someone says, Let's give a, I'm going to give you a talk on what the, about the Messianic era, um, if they give you a picture of what it looks like, they are very mistaken. Not because there isn't, they don't have an opinion, but they can only have an. There is no definitive model of what it looks like. And the same too with the, you know, any form of eschatological discussion. What's going to happen when we die? No one knows what happens when we die. Despite, you know, I'm sure you've all been to talks about what happens when we die. But no one knows. You know, the concept of olam haba, you know, the world to come. Is it physical? Is it spiritual? What does it look like? No one knows. No one knows. And it's important to understand it. So when it comes to Mashiach, because no one knows, it's going to be very easy to tell people what it's going to look like. So if I come along and say, I'm the Messiah, you don't really have a framework with which to base it. You know, you, there is this general idea that the world will be a much better place. But all I need to convince you is that it is. And if I can convince you that the world is a better place because I'm in it, and you feel that there's, then my messianic qualifications might have been filled. So, so this is where the challenge is going to become, is that we look at the world, and because the natural, uh, natural inclination of man is to look at his own paradigm, uh, to quote um, a Yiddish phrase, to a worm in uh, Chrein, the whole world is Chrein. Okay, uh, which probably sounds much better in the Yiddish. But the idea is that your perspective is reality. So if I come and think that, oh, this must be messianic, from my perspective, it's impossible that's not. So a good example, which some of you would remember, is 1967. I mean, could there have been a more a clearer messianic opportunity than Jerusalem is back in the hands of the Jews for after 2,000 years of absence. This miraculous victory in battle over six days. You know, Jews are triumphant, standing on the Temple Mount. Could it be anything else other than Mashiach? 
So if you have no other perspective with which to look other than that, then the answer is, yeah, it could be Mashiach. So, so, okay. Well, we're, we're fighting to open the gate. Okay. So, so, so that's a, and, and the same goes in reverse. When you, you come out of the shackles of the Holocaust, you come and say, it must be Mashiach. Mashiach must be around the corner. Mashiach is right here coming to way because we think it is impossible that when we talk about what's called the Chevle Mashiach, the birth pangs of Mashiach, that, the, that Mashiach will come in the immediate aftermath of tremendous destruction. So you walk out of the Holocaust and you say, could, it's impossible that if there is a Mashiach that he would not come now. And lo and behold, the Holocaust came and went. The Six-Day War has come and gone. And if Mashiach is any closer today, other than the, pass- the natural passage of time, assuming that the Mashiach will come at a particular date, so the only reason we are closer today than we were yesterday is because we are a day ahead, not necessarily because of those events. And because of all this ambiguity, generation of generation is going to espouse certain characters or movements that will try to hold this mantle of messianism. And will convince multiple people without exception. And not the, 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 not the what we call the Hamon Am. Not the lay uh, ignoramuses. If that's the word, ignoramuses, thank you. That the Amcha, the, 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 the simpletons of the town. The, who I can part people up towards the gates of Jerusalem. But we are going to talk about people and movements that have grabbed the, 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 the brightest amongst us. From scholar to, to Balabos and everyone, and to, to political leaders, these people have managed to capture the imaginations of our greatest, and in some cases were our greatest. So it's, it's, it's quite a phenomenon. Okay, so let's go through, um, again, I, I being, since it's my lecture, I can pick whoever I want. So I've picked what I believe are, you know, the most, uh, the most influential uh, messianic movements and people that we've had in our history um, and I'm not making the mistake that I made the last time which I think Jeff corrected me on by leaving Jesus out so I shan't, I shan't make the same mistake this time Okay, so the first real time we see this and, and, it's, and, and you probably might not be aware of it is in the, the Hasmonean dynasty so who are the Hasmoneans? so Hasmonean dynasties were what we more, more likely know as the Maccabees that when the Maccabees came along, so we're talking of a time that was very dark in Jewish history, that the Greek Empire, or at least Hellenic culture, had completely taken over Judea in particular, the whole of Israel in general, and had started implementing various Hellenic practices to try drown out all resemblances of Jewish existence within them. And it was that rejection of that lifestyle, initially by Matityahu, uh, Matthew, you know the uh, the what is known as uh, Matityahu, the who is from the family of the Hasmoneans, and his children, including Yochanan, Yehuda Maccabee, and and their brothers, that they you know revolted against this. Now this all took place in Modi'in, for those who are familiar with Modi'in, and the Great Revolt you know took place, and the Great Battles ensued, and eventually led to the victory of the Hasmoneans over the Greeks, which eventually led to the festival Hanukkah. And the Hanukkah, and we, you know, you know, all the whole story there. What we are not always aware of is what happened after that. Now, the Hashmonaim, the Maccabees, they were from the tribe of Levi. Now, the problem with them being from the tribe of Levi is that in Yaakov's deathbed, when he uh, gives his blessing to his twelve sons, says that the mantle, the scepter of leadership, should never pass from the tribe of Yehuda. The, the tribe of Judah were always meant to be the kings, the tribe of Levi were always meant to be the priests, and one could not steal the mantle from one another. So the way that you know the sages look at it, they, um, they, when the Gomorrah starts dealing with it, now the Gomorrah is dealing in hindsight, because the Gomorrah is only written, around, started being compiled you know, around the year 600 we're talking about. So um, when they, they now, you know, close to probably five, eight hundred years past this whole story, but they're looking back in hindsight and saying the corruption that came from the Hashmonaim um, eventually led to them becoming completely corrupt, that the priesthood starts being purchased, and it's actually going to set up a large part of the background story to which Jesus is going to become a part. But what happened 
in, in, and the Rambam writes this, when he starts talking about the laws of Hanukkah, is that when the Hashmonaim came, they, re, they brought back Jewish monarchy, Jewish leadership and Jewish autonomy and self-governance, to, which had not existed for a significant period of time and it lasted for hundreds of years. That whole idea of Jewish autonomy was seen very much in that we, once we have won, now the Mashiach will come. Now, there are multiple times throughout the Torah we talk about that, you know, if Moshe had eventually taken Bnei Israel into Egypt rather than uh, into Israel rather than having died in the wilderness, then the Mashiach would have come, whatever the case might be. But the Hashmonaim took this leadership very seriously because they felt they could not be defeated. And it isn't even to, at the time of the destruction of the temple, which is going to happen after Jesus. You know, it's going to happen in the year 70. The idea that the temple or Judaism could be destroyed and, it, and, and be exiled again was something that was almost impossible to believe. Because everyone bought in that surely God would not allow it to happen. That we are now, yes, we, we were defeated, but the Hashmonaim have taken us under, into the, you know, have taken us under the wing. Jewish monarchy is at the top. Yes, it's the Levis. It's not the trial from Yehuda. Nevertheless, it should last forever. Mashiach will, you know, this is, this is it. And it's not. And, and, and eventually what happens is that entire um, structure crumbles. In fact, so much that it says that there's a Gemara comes and says that anyone who comes and says they have descended from the Hashmonaim. So a Levi comes to you and says, I'm a descendant of Hashmonaim. says he's, he's definitely a slave because nobody survived from the Hashmonaim. That entire not a generation, but that whole lineage was completely obliterated because of this false... And, and truth be told, no one really talks about it in messianic terms, but it is exactly how it was sold to, uh, to the Jewish people. Now, from those... Um, from those Hashmonaim, eventually what lands up happening amongst the generations is that the Jewish community, and we're going to talk about this more next week, when we talk about schism sects within the Jewish community. So the Judaism really breaks up into three different sects during the Second Temple period. Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes. Now the Pharisees, we are the descendants of the Pharisees. Sadducees and Essenes no longer are long around. The Essenes are those who landed up writing the Dead Sea Scrolls. So the difference between the Sadducees and Pharisees were largely dependent on the concept of oral tradition, whether there's a, the, that the written text should be understood at face value or there was an oral interpretation and an explanation needed to go along with it. One or another, there were enormous political shenanigans that went around the, the temple. For generations, the Kohen Gadol was a purchased position. I've actually just finished a book. I've got 30 pages left, I can say I basically finished the book. Um, which is written by a professor rabbi of history, professor of history slash rabbi named Benny Lau, is the late, was the previous chief rabbi's nephew. So for those who are familiar with the story of Rabbi Lau's brother carrying him in his backpack, so it's the the brother carrying the backpack son. Okay, so he's got a book. He's got a four uh, four volume set on the sages where they go through the history of the sages, and he talks about all these. Descendants and, and, and the infighting and the enormous corruption that existed around the temple, which is why when the character that is Jesus comes up, he, he resonates a chord because his big fight is against corruption, that the absolute corruption around the temple. And if you go read the New Testament, which I am not advocating in any uh, shape or form, is that the large part of Jesus' call was to fight the corruption of the temple, which was prolific. There's, everyone agrees that it was a broken institution. The temple was a completely broken institution. And the, so much so that when the Talmud comes and says that when the Romans eventually destroyed the temple, all they were doing is grounding up flour that had already been ground. It was, it was a meaningless, empty vessel of a structure that really served no real purpose other than as a, you know, a facade of Jewish autonomy. It really had no value. And so when Jesus came along... There was quite a, a, a significant following, at least in, the, let's call it a social justice kind of way. Where it comes, and this we will see, comes time and time again with these messianic characters. It is not the Messiah themselves that is the mouthpiece for their messianism. So, um, now I'll, I'll digress slightly here, only because it, I think it is quite instructive. And that is to quote a little bit of Monty Python. 
that Brian, everyone's seen the life of Brian? Oh, I'm amongst friends, yeah, thank God. If you didn't, I would, I would stop and say we were... Huh? Uh, life of Brian. Okay, so, so Brian never held of his own messianism. It was others who really raised him up into messianic character, and that we're going to see is that it is not the Messiah himself who is the mouthpiece for the messianic mission, in as much as it's others who champion them to become the Messiah. In some cases, they will believe it themselves, and sometimes they will espouse it, and in other times they won't. But regardless of which, is that it, you need that other character to give it momentum. So Jesus in his own lifetime, now this is true for leaders almost throughout the world, is that in Jesus' lifetime, he never had a significant following. At least, not a significant following to the degree that it made it worth Pontius Pilate's uh, idea to not put him to death. Now, for those who don't know the history, um, basically, if you hold by the New Testament historical account, is that Pontius Pilate was torn between two parties, those of the early Christians who were Jews, who were sect within Judaism, who were pleading for Jesus not to be killed, and the Sanhedrin, the, the, Phari- the Pharisaic, Pharisaic, Pharisaic line, doesn't sound right for say Pharisaic, no? but the Pharisaic line, who were calling for his death, and he, he, he washes his hands, and this is the whole uh, metaphor, that he, that he puts Jesus to death in deference to the Sanhedrin. So, so Jesus himself may have been a charismatic individual, but as a leader has very few followers, at least very few followers to make a real impact. Jesus dies, and for 70 years, his disciples, apostles, go on this merry mission to somehow try to convince people that they should buy into this messianic vision of, of Jesus being the leader, the Messiah, and, and being able to drag people along with him incredibly unsuccessful. The apostles almost become, be, become extinct. And it was not until a guy named Saul of Tarsus, who later changed his name to Paul, has a vision on the road to Damascus where Jesus comes to him and says that he should stop preaching to Jews and should start preaching to Gentiles. And it is that point that everything shifts. Is that point that the, the, when Paul comes and he's opposed by the apostles, who say that, no, you know, we, you know, we got the message from Jesus himself, and he said, you know, stay with him. And he says, listen, you go your merry way, I go my merry way. Let's see who has more success. And it is through the preaching, and, and, and Paul being the mouthpiece for Jesus, that all of a sudden, this messianic fear, and so much culture starts developing, that has been inbred and infused from paganistic cultures. Uh, I think you, you, even within the Christian world, you know, many are very clear of the assumption that the 25th of December has no, you know, real significance within Christianity. That it is somehow been imported from other sects, and you see Greek Orthodox and Russian Orthodox, and do not celebrate um, Christmas, at least not on this day, not on the 25th of December. And so much of this was, was, was uh, you know, brought in. So, so what happened, and, and this we, we have a lot of fear in, in the modern era, then there are certain parallels that we will get to a bit later, is that in time the Gentile converts far outnumbered the Jewish Christians to the point that when a person came to you and said they were Christian, you have to assume that they were Gentiles. And now the, the, the Jewishness of Christianity was completely forgotten and all the descendants of, the, of Christianity were automatically considered Gentiles. And, and so that's the, you know, what happens under Jesus' leadership. So uh, I don't need to go in depth of the, the struggles that we've had with Jesus as, as a messianic character. And the whole concept which, um, which has never died, not through Christianity or through any other messianic movement, is the idea that even if the Messiah does not fully fulfill the ideals of what a Messiah should do in his lifetime, don't worry, they will come back and do it in a second coming. Now, what is a second coming? So, I, I don't know, to tell you the truth. Other than the idea being that even if someone, if, if the messianic ideal is that the world is to be a significantly better place, be peace and harmony or whatever, but that the presence of the Mashiach 
or the death of the Mashiach has not brought the world to a significantly better place to the point that we think we are in the messianic era so we have to assume that this guy is going to come back and when he does it the second time he'll you know he will do it right he needs to die and then to come back and redo it again okay and we will see that come that theme which we will initially think is a christian theme coming back and back and back again throughout jewish history okay so jesus is the first one and it, it would be interesting to note that the concept of a second coming is something that by and large, was always considered a Christian ideal. Why is Jesus, and you go read any Jewish literature, on why is Jesus not the Messiah? Because he did not fulfill any of the Messianic prophecies while he was alive. Ah, he will do it when he, when he comes back. There is no illusion whatsoever to a second coming. That is, I can show you many a book, anti-missionary book, that that is the theology associated with. Okay, so that is number two. Now we're talking literally at the, at the start of the common era. The third messianic character, which perhaps um, um, is, is, is somewhat um, uh, complex in that he himself is convinced of his messianism through somebody who others would say would knew better. And this is uh, Rabbi Akiva. Not Rabbi Akiva being the, the Mashiach, but Rabbi Akiva um, throwing his weight behind the Mashiach. And that Mashiach was Bar Kochba. Now, I don't know if it's... So the name Bar Kochba... Yes, everyone's heard of Bar Kokhba in some field. So who is Bar Kokhba? So Bar Kokhba was one of the Jews in charge of the rebellion. He, he, he led the rebellion against the Romans in the revolt. He was eventually killed in Beitar. And uh, he's part of the whole Tisha B'Av commemoration. But he, his name is not entirely clear what his name was. But Akiva called him, Rabbi Akiva. Now this is Rabbi Akiva. This is, uh, so he called him Bar Kokhba. Based on the Pasuk that the star says so a Pasuk. Let me quote the Pasuk over here. There shall come for a star from Jacob and a scepter shroud of Israel and shall smite through the corners of Moab. So this is from a prophecy in the book of Haggai who talks about the Mashiach, that a star will come forth from Jacob. So what's a star in Hebrew? Kochav, Bar Kochba. This is the star. And, and Rabbi Akiva threw, throw, throws all of his religious muscle behind Bar Kochba saying, this guy is the Mashiach. Now, but the problem was, that Bar Kokhba was, by their standards, not a religious guy. He was not a guy who was seen in, in a religious, pious way. So all of Akiva's uh, contemporaries, uh, the, the term they use is, is, there'll be grass growing out of your nose, and still Bar Kokhba will not be Mashiach. Which is another way of saying, you know, you will never live to see this guy come as Mashiach. But, but th- a lot of people, you know, if you get a, a character like Rabbi Akiva, and it's hard to argue that there's anyone greater in stature and personality throughout Talmudic times, I mean, granted, he's Mishnaic times, before the Talmud, but Mishnaic times, then Akiva, he is, he is the leader par excellence. And when he throws his weight behind Bar Kokhba, people really believe you know, that this guy is going to actually, he's fighting the Romans, he's going to bring down the Romans, and the problem is he fails. And the way he fails is he... He, so they get a, a couple of stories that take place that he, he has a number of serious runnings with other with many of the sages to which some of them he expresses enormous amount of violence. And it is at some point, I'm not exactly sure which point, but the Gomorrah really starts talking about that at some point Akiva himself realizes that I was wrong. Or is wrong. Now I, I have a um, I have a theory which I bounced off other rabbis and they've disagreed with. So just so you understand I give the the, um, the preamble to that, and said that did did Bar Kochba fail because he himself was doomed for failure, or did he fail because he never got the support of those around him? That he had a kiva, yes, but everybody else disapproved, and perhaps had others thrown their thrown their weight behind him that would have had a significant, uh, perhaps it would have looked very different. So I, I wondered that, um, and i tell you why I wondered that. Because I looked to the modern state of Israel, and I wonder if more people threw their weight behind it, would it look very different today? The fact that the significant segments, the majority segments of the religious community have never embraced the state of Israel, what would it look like had they? 
So now they can look at it and say, well, look at it now. You know, it's, look at the corruption, look at the prostitution, look at the drugs, look at the da 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 da. And now they can all look and say, oh, you see, Bakochba told you he wasn't the Mashiach. They say, but might he have been? Did he not change maybe like Muhammad because he had a good start and then he went way with him? I don't know, I don't know, Bakochba, but I just wonder when the man was, she's a position, he no longer behaves like the man that. Well, I think we, we'll, we'll see, you know, the, um, the th- at which point did Bar you know, fall out of favor with Akiva, so it's no question, well, he was on top, you know. Um, in fact, they changed his name, the Gemara changed his name from Bar to Balkoziva, you know, the son of uh, disgrace, you know, he, that, uh, what's interesting is, I don't know what his name was, we just know what he was called. Um, but invariably, you'll see that um, these these characters, um, these sort of things happen. All right. So that's what happens to Bakochba. All right. Okay. So that's uh, now I'm going to do quite a significant jump forward, but probably the the most infamous messianic story outside of out of uh, Jesus, and even Jesus, Jesus from a messianic point of view wasn't such a debacle vis-a-vis the Jewish community. Vis-a-vis world history, no question. But vis-a-vis the Jewish community, how many people were led astray by the messianism of Jesus is not terribly many, at least in the big scheme of things. The greatest false messiah in the, in the annals of Jewish history was a guy named Shabtai Tzvi. So who's Shabtai Tzvi? So now we're talking, you know, Shabtai Tzvi, we're talking mid-1600s. Uh, from, uh, he lived throughout the 1600s. There's a guy who was born and was a, was, a, was a learned man. Now, one of the things that I perhaps should have raised beforehand. And, and, and I think this is pertinent for Shabtai Tzvi, but it is pertinent to all of the messiahs, is what is the fertile ground necessary to breed messiahs? Yeah? Messiahs don't like just come out. Like a messiah won't arise today. No, no, you'll have no messianic characters in Sydney, Australia. And the reason that you won't have is because the thing that, the, the prerequisite, the ingredients of a messianic character is tragedy. Because the Messiah brings hope in the aftermath of tremendous destruction. So the Jesus type figure in the aftermath, so when did Jesus, when did Paul come along? 70 years after the death of Jesus. What else happened 70 years after the death of Jesus? It's destruction of the temple. Um, you look at the, the, the Hasmonaim. They come in the aftermath of the, of the Greek conquest. You look at Bar coming in the midst of, of battle. Shabtai Tzvi comes immediately after the Chmelniki massacres. So Bogdan Chmelniki or Chmelniski, or so many different ways of pronouncing his name, what is known within Jewish literature as Gzero Tachvatat, because those are the, the Jewish years, where he was a Cossack, uh, you know, in the whole Ukrainian that. Three to four hundred thousand Jews were killed over a period of three to four months by hand. I mean, we are talking now in literally just absolute massacres that even the first and second crusades did not decimate the Jewish communities to the same degree. That did. And other than the Shoah, there was nothing that came close in Jewish history other than the destruction of the temple. It absolutely decimated the Jewish communities of Europe. And in the aftermath of that, the communities were desperate for some level of hope. So Shabtai Tzvi is a very learned man. He's well respected. And he manages to, he goes, he goes on a pilgrimage through Jerusalem and he meets and his mouthpiece is a guy named Nathan of Gaza. Now, if, if anyone's familiar with um, the, the Jewish historian Gershom Shalom, so like Jewish, there have been a lot of very significant Jewish historians. So Gershom Shalom wrote a book on Shabtai Tzvi that is just slightly longer than the Tanakh. So I'm like, I'm struggling to get through it, and it's not an easy read. But, but he captures the whole personality of the individual. That, that Shabtai Tzvi, through Nathan of Gaza, who convinced him that he was the Mashiach, Nathan of Gaza took on the persona. He said he was the reincarnation of Elijah. And Elijah's role, as we know, is to announce the coming of Mashiach. And Nathan of Gaza and Shabtai Tzvi many, go on basically pilgrimages throughout, not pilgrimages, but go on uh, road trips throughout Europe and convincing them that he is the Mashiach and he is going to uh, bring, you know, bring the, the, 
the Ottoman, I don't know what the Ottoman, but the, uh, the, the Turkish Empire down on its knees. They were in charge at this point in time. And he was going to, um, you know, usher back the, the lost tribes and everyone's going to come back to Eretz Israel. Now, as much as we look on this sort of story, and, and it sounds so fantastical that it's hard to believe anyone bought into it, up to two-thirds of European Jewry bought into Shabtai Tzvi. Some of the biggest rabbis of the time felt that, that saw that Shabtai Tzvi was legitimate. People sold their property. People moved to Israel. There were huge mass aliyahs from Israel where you had in many a town the rabbi being the only person left behind because the whole town had moved to Israel to go join Shabtai Tzvi on this great messianic march into the wars of, you know, through the gates of Jerusalem. And it was unbelievable because here in the aftermath of what clearly was the birth pangs of Mashiach, ushered in was now Shabtai Tzvi. Now, the sad irony, what happened to Shabtai Tzvi, is en route he was stopped by the sultan in Turkey, who said to him, Mashiach, okay, I, I give you an option, you can convert to Islam, or you could die. And uh, at that point, Shabtai Tzvi decided that Islam was a much better calling for him than, than, uh, than dying, and he converted to Islam. Now, what is almost, the, probably the most fascinating part of the whole story is that did not end the Shabtai Tzvi story. People for generations, Shabtai Tzvi died in what's it, 1676. For generations after Shabtai Tzvi's death and his conversion, there were still stories that he was going to come back and usher us into Yerushalayim. Now, just so you should understand to the degree, one of the most notable machloikas, uh, disputes, rabbinic disputes throughout Jewish history, and I, I say that uh, in a non facetious throughout Jewish history, were between two rabbis named Rav Yaakov Emden and Rav Yonatan Eibeshitz. Uh, Rav Yaakov Emden was the Rav in Amsterdam, and Rav Yonatan Eibeshitz was in, um, I just have to think, in Altona. Altona, which was in, uh, was in, was in Germany. Germany, Germany, Africa, but it was in Altona. The story goes as Rav, Yaak- Rav Yaakov Emden's father was a guy named Rav Tzvi Ashkenazi, the Chacham Tzvi. He was a Rav in uh, Amsterdam. He had to deal with a large group of Moranos. That was one of the big challenges that he had to deal with the generation of Moranos who had fled Spain and Portugal and had arrived in Amsterdam and now wanted to rejoin the Jewish community. So Shabtai, but, but he also had to deal with Shabtai Tzvi. Shabtai Tzvi was, he had to deal with Shabtai Tzvi and he was one of the most vocal anti uh, Shabtai Tzvi people and he had to deal with the aftermath of the disappointment so his son Rav Yaakov Emden hounded out anybody who smelled like they supported Shabtai Tzvi now the greatest rabbi of the generation was either Rav Yonatan Eibeshitz or Rav Yaakov Emden Rav Yaakov Emden received one day a testimony from someone that they found something called a Kamea a Kamea is an amulet now, this is something that we don't really use much, perhaps in the Kabbalistic world they do. But back in the, uh, you know, a while back, amulets were things that were regularly written by rabbis, incantations that you carry them, that give you some healing power, whatever the case might be. And the accusation came to Rav Yaakov Emden that this person had received an amulet, a Kamea, written by Rav Yonatan Eibeshitz. And if you read through, the, uh, the Kamea, it is clear that Rav Yonatan Eibeshitz is a supporter and believer in Shabtai Tzvi. And he hounded him from community to community. It became the most divisive event in the entire 1700s within the Jewish community of Europe, of whether you held by Shabtai Tzvi, whether you held by Rav Yaakov Enden, Rav Yonatan Eibeshitz. Rav Yonatan Eibeshitz never disputed the fact that he, that this, he, he wouldn't get into the debate. He, didn't, he neither admitted nor denied any allegations that he was a Shabtai And Rav Yaakov Emden went to, to Yonatan Eibeshitz's wife's grave and he saw that the name, there was an acrostic on the, on the grave that was written out like Shabtai Tzvi. You have no idea the level of vitriol that went on between these two individuals and the hatred that was caused because of the thought that, that one of them was a closet Shabtai Tzvi supporter 50 years after the death of Shabtai Tzvi. 
That is how deep this thing ran. Now, I, I, uh, when I, I go to America, as you well know, I go every year, so one, the, the, one of the rabbis that I see when, I, when I'm in the States, he is PhD from Harvard was on Yonatan Ibishit and Rav Yaakov Endon's dispute. So it is it is it is is an unbelievable story and something well worth reading up on. This, the, 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 the most interesting uh, twist of the story is Rav Yonatan Ibishit died first. And when Rav Yaakov Endon died, he died on an Erev Yontif, if I'm not mistaken. And the only grave available immediately was the grave immediately next to Rav Yonatan Ibishit's. And they were buried next to one another. It is it is one of the these the, the ironic uh, stories of history. Now, so Shabtai Tzvi and and uh, albeit that Shabtai Tzvi eventually the the myth and, and, and legend that was Shabtai Tzvi eventually died, but the response to it didn't. And what I mean by that, because in the late seventeen hundreds. Very similar, well, we're talking, yeah, the early 1700s. We're going to have a, a movement now. And the movement is going to be very messianic in flavor, although not so much in, in, in personality. And that is the Hasidic movement. That when the Hasidic movement came along, and this was started by Rav Yisrael, Baal Shem Tov, the whole idea of the Hasidic movement was, firstly, delving into Kabbalah, something that Shabtai Tzvi had done. You know, up until Shabtai Tzvi, the concept of Kabbalah was for the for few and far between, for the scholars amongst us, not for the laymen. But Shabtai Tzvi had used Kabbalistic works to show you know, various insights and ideas that would prove his messianism. Comes Hasidus and it likewise has this messianic fervor and has this mystical side to it. And what is the response from the establishment? So if you know anything about Jewish history, there's that when the Hasidim started, there was another group. And the group that was against the Hasidim took on the name the opponents. That's what you call the Misnagdim. So if you ever heard the term of the Misnagdim, the word Misnagdim means opponent. And the wars that take place in the first hundred years of the Hasidic Misnagdish movement only happens to the intensity that it does because it's coming immediately after Shabtai Tzvi. Because the, the, the establishment being the Misnagdim, this is now the Vilna Goan, and, and that's the Hevra that's leading up the anti-Hasidic movement. They have just seen half of Europe decimated spiritually and financially as a result of the charlatan that was Shabtai Tzvi. And immediately afterwards, you have another group, another guy who's coming, the Baal Shem Tov and, and his Talmudims. You have, you have the Maggid of Mezerich, and then you have the Balatanya, and you have, uh, you have all these other Hevra who are coming with a similar, now different, but similar type of approach of messianism and mysticism, and they fight it. And it becomes a huge war in Europe, which, to a large degree, never ended. But to a certain degree, has in a sense that everybody's, to a large degree, b'shalom at the moment. But the idea that this confrontation between, between the Hasidim and the non-Hasidim, the Misnagdim, really came in the aftermath both of the Chmelniki massacres as well as the debacle of Shabtai Tzvi. Okay, I'm doing time wise. All right. So that's, that's, that, without a doubt, from a destructive point of view, if you want to look to destructive Messiah. Now, there was another guy named Jacob Frank. I don't know if any of you know Frank. Frank, if I'm not mistaken, felt that he was a, a, a reincarnation of Shabtai Tzvi and that he was going to. Um, you know, bring it all, and him and his daughter, and there's a whole big debacle there. Listen, I think at the time, it, it would have had significant success, but uh, in, 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 in the annals, let's say, in, in the context of Jewish history, it never grew to the level of Shabtai Tzvi. Okay. So, in the next case we come, and I think this is, uh, we have two phases. There's no question that as far as destruction goes in the aftermath, of uh, in Jewish history, there's no destruction like the Holocaust, and so there was no question that a Messiah was soon to follow. And two Messiahs, at least um, from what I can see, have arisen. One in the case of a movement, and that, that movement being Zionism, is that in the aftermath of, of you know we in the modern era we look at the Holocaust, and we say it, you know this is Gog Umagog. So this term, which you may have heard before, Gog or Magog, is supposed to be the Armageddon 
of, of Jewish history. That is the immediate precursor to the Messianic era. So if we are to say in our perspective, what is Gog or Magog? Well, could there be anything that came close to Armageddon you know, in, then the Holocaust. It was almost that, you know, it could not, it is impossible, never again. It is not possible that there will ever be anything of the intensity of the Shoah. And so what's the response? Within three years of the Shoah, we have the state of Israel. So the state of Israel is, This is what we say when we daven on and when we pray for the government. The beginning of the flowering of our redemption. You know, this, this is how we speak of, we speak of the state in messianic terms. Now, Rav Kook, as I should know, so Rav Kook, who was the first chief rabbi of, of Palestine, he passed away in the 1920s. But he saw within the Zionistic movement a, a real pathway towards messianism, that this was going to lead us down the path of the Mashiach. Now, this is before the Shoah, but he saw it very clearly. In fact, the way he saw it was that the secular Jew was going to be, he, he gave the, the following analogy, that, that we, as we know, the Mashiach is, is to be carried into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. And he says that analogy, he says, is, you have to look at the secular Jew is the donkey. That when you look at the donkey, if you ask the donkey what is he doing, he does not know. But in reality, he is carrying the Mashiach on his back into Jerusalem. And the secular Jews, through building the land and through contributing to the land and providing, you know, you know, putting all the steps in place, they are going to bring in the Mashiach, not because that's what they consciously are doing, but like the donkey, they are carrying the Mashiach on their back. That was why Rav Cook was so positive. I mean, in, in, in all Jewish history, there has never been anybody who embraced secular Jews in the way that Rav Cook did. At best, what you've got, and I would say that most... Uh, most movements have come around to this wealth thing is the idea that all Jews have potential and the fire is never extinguished and we should always hold out a hand because we never know when they'll come back. But most, most philosophies of Judaism still look that there's a lost Jew who might come back. Rav Cook looked at that the lost Jew wasn't lost. He was part of the Messianic vision. And him in his secular, his chaza eating on Yom Kippur, Traif, Yid, is part of this messianic vision. And that is what the, you know, Zionism was. And so Bnei Akiva, which really follow in, there are two streams of Zionism. So you should understand. There's, there's Cook Zionism, which is very messianic focused. And there's Soloveitchik Zionism, which is very pragmatically focused. I'm more the latter than the former. So pragmatic is the state of Israel is a great thing that we've got. We've got to embrace it. Why? Because it is the best thing we've got. And it's for safety, security, and learning, etc., etc. But it's void of any messianic uh, uh, quality in and of itself. That we cannot talk of, the t- of, of, of Messiah until we have Mashiach. And, uh, and when Mashiach comes, we can say, ah, oh, now I see how Mashiach was going. So, so Zionism came. And, and so what happens along the ways is that you know, there's a concept called confirmation bias. This is a psychological term. So confirmation bias is if you want to believe something, you will see it wherever you go. And everything, everything disproves your theory will be ignored, and everything that confirms your theory will be noticed. And then, so you will build up uh, in great arguments towards you. So, this, so, so the state of Israel was developed, and the Six-Day War, or firstly the, the War of Independence, followed by you know, um, Sinai Campaign, followed by the Six-Day War, followed by the Yom Kippur War, each and of themselves were further proof of the fact that the Mashiach is getting closer, that every single battle brought with it another, you know, another step closer to Mashiach. Those Zionists are largely disillusioned in the modern era. And, and, and this is one of the challenges that the, the modern state of Israel has, is because disillusioned Zionistic youth are seeing their dreams and visions of a messianic redemption slowly fizzle in front of their eyes as peace accords and lands are given away and, uh, and, and governments that seem less and less interested in building a religious you know, thing. And so what you're having is, you have, and we spoke about this last night, uh, a few these Meshuganas living on hilltops and whatever the case might be, is that these are largely the Messianic Jews. Um, it's not, no, I can't say Messianic Jews because that's something completely different. The Messianic Zionists that are, are struggling with the uh, modern day reality. Okay, so that's in the thing.
So the last one, and I, and I, I, I will try to be as uncontroversial as possible, but uh, you can't go, and that is the messianism of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And, uh, and now that is transpired. Now, um, there are multiple books written on, on this topic, both in favor and in against. Um, what I, I, from my understanding at least, is at no point did the Lubavitcher Rebbe ever, ever make clear that he thought he was the Mashiach. This is from what I can say. Those who say, who are very much that he is the Mashiach, will say he did. And those who um, are anti him will also say that he did. But there are many that would suggest that uh, if, if he did, at best it was an illusion to the fact that he was Mashiach. They, what, what, what is, in, what is in almost 100% clear is the entire Lubavitch community believed he would be the Mashiach. And uh, there was no denying that, that while he was alive, that he was, and it's hard to believe that there's anyone, in the, at least in the, in the recent Jewish history, that has made active contributions to the Jewish people that the Lubavitcher Rebbe has done. Um, what became, the, I suppose, the big controversy was the fact that he passed away. Or, and truth be told, something you will never hear mentioned in the Lubavitch community. That the, for example... If I speak about the Rambam, I say the Rambam Zichron Levracha. If I speak about the Vulnagoan, the Vulnagoan Zichron Levracha, you will never hear the Rebbe spoken about Zichron Levracha. Okay? And, and so the concept, you will never hear about the late Rebbe. The Rebbe is spoken about in the present tense. The Rebbe has not died, or the Rebbe has, will come back, or the Rebbe will, will do. And the concept of the messianism of the Rebbe, now, some um, within the Lubavitch community are very vocal about this that they don't hide behind it. So you will see, you will see um, flags of saying, which was a song that was sung during his lifetime, which means long live the, the king, the king Messiah forever, which is sung, was sung in his presence and is subsequently sung in his, in his passing. Um, pictures of the Lubavitcher Rebbe say, live the Melech HaMashiach, which you will see plastered all over you know, definitely over places. It's fighted, Yerushalayim. Um, in the local, you will see um, there are certain uh, cars that drive around in the eastern suburbs that have, have things plastered over over their cars. But I would say the vast majority of the Lubavitch community I've confronted with do, are not so overt about it. They are definitely covert about it. And, um, and there are very few Lubavitch Hasidim that if you were to ask them for a yes-no answer, do you believe the Rebbe is Mashiach and will come back and fulfill Mashiach, you will find very few who would give you a no. And I would venture to say you probably won't find one that will give you a no. They will say, well, it's really complex or something. Now, and this is where things get a bit challenging. So I've had this out with a number of Lubavitcher Hasidim. I said up until the passing of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, every Jew said that the second coming could never happen that that was a Christian concept. And truth be told, there are multiple books written on this topic in, in, in about those that are justifying a concept of a second coming and those who, those who say that this is a Christian concept that is being reinvented in our own time. Now, I think it's one thing that we have to, that we have to be very clear of is that there's nothing destructive has come out of the Rebbe's messianism other than perhaps theologically. But practically speaking, the, the Rebbe's messianism, um, even post his death, has not caused people to become disillusioned with Judaism. And if anything, it has allowed the Chabad movement to consist, con continue to thrive and flourish throughout the world and to do the kind of work that it did while he was alive. So there is nothing to suggest that the, the debacles of Shabtai Tzvi, of Bar Kochba, uh, and of others is going to be uh, mimicked in this particular case. But that being said, there are some, what's the term? some very vocal antagonists to this because they say, you know, in Shabtai Tzvi's case, it didn't start that way either. It was much later that things went pear-shaped. And so the, probably the most vocal opponent of it that I'm aware of in the Orthodox world is a guy named Professor, Rabbi Professor Dr. David Berger, who's written a number of books on the topic, and uh, there's no question he's, uh, he's no friend of Chabad, and I don't think he'll be speaking at the next Chabad Gala dinner. Um, that being said, and, and one of his accusations against mainstream Orthodoxy 
is their absolute indifference and and refusal to call a spade a spade. So if you so and and, and I acknowledge that this is is controversial. This might be another talk that I don't put up on the web, but um, most um, non um, non Lubavitch rabbis who you speak to, you say, what is your opinion on? This on the concept of the Rebbe being Mashiach will be very clear on, in their opposition to it. And they say, ah, but why don't you say anything or why don't you do anything? So they say, you know, it is rather... And so, so Dr. David Berger's book is actually um, something about the, the, uh, the rabbis' ambivalence or indifference to the whole situation where they realize that it's an issue but they're not prepared to make an issue of it. I'm not sure it's the battle we need to be fighting at this point in time. But that being said, is that theologically, if you're talking theologically, no question, it's a challenging issue and one that um, that brings with it a lot of uh, problems. But um, it's if you look at it in context, so we saw that there was a Shoah, there was always going to be somebody or someone, whether it be a movement or an individual, that would come and give hope to the future generations. And invariably, if there's another tragedy, or if we were to believe that, which is said in the Pesach Seder, that in every generation, so not if, but rather when, the next tragedy arises, you can be you can be guaranteed it won't be long before an individual or movement arises to come and give us hope again. And um, unfortunately, because of uh, if history is to repeat itself, and I suppose that's why we call this patterns in Jewish history, um, our, our future is no doubt going to be littered with plenty more false messiahs and plenty more series of tragedies. So... Thank you all. Any questions? Yeah, oh. <laughs> I, I one, assuming that we were to believe in a Messiah, I'm still not clear what a Messianic age is. As a Jew, what, what should your behavior be towards the Messiah? I mean, if there's only one God, most, what tends to happen is people start to worship the Messiah. So, what, if, 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 assuming there was to be a Messiah, what would our behavior be towards them? How should we treat them? The, the, the Mashiach, as my understanding goes, at least this is according to the Rambam, is to be somebody human in every sense of the word. A great human, but a human nonetheless. Even Moses, if we take Moses as an individual. Moses was a man born of flesh. You know, he was not a... There was no immaculate conception. There was no, uh, no one ever said that Moses never sinned and he was a perfect individual. Moses had character flaws like everybody else. Um, and so the concept of deep respect, admiration for such an individual, but idolization is, is where we start getting to problems. There's no question that that happens. And uh, any charismatic leader has that, uh, has to be wary of that, that people stop worshipping that which his worship, he is worshipping and rather start worshipping him or her, whatever the case might be. But um, the Mashiach is not going to be somebody of superpower. He is supposed to be a, a regular person, but just a great person. Did you? Is there any comparable uh, movement in the, the Satmar title belt? Uh, no. No, to the best of my knowledge, the only other Hasidic movement who ever had a messianic figure at its helm was possibly the the Breslavers with Rav Nachman of Breslav, and even that, um, I, I've never been. Uh, it's never been as vocal. Um, don't forget that the the Lubavitcher Rebbe himself and his father-in-law were very big on Mashiach. Uh, the concept of Mashiach, like when it, we, we we often like every talk you go to. You know, you hear them in and it's Mashiach, you know, quickly Mashiach. Mashiach is like a relatively new concept as far as popularity goes. And if you went to talks 100 years ago, no one would be talking about Mashiach. And so much, I, I had this, if you recall, we had the talks between myself and Rabbi Shapiro in the last year. And the, one of them was on the Messiah. And I said that in my entire time in Yeshiva, we never had one lecture on Mashiach. And not only did I, neither did Rabbi Cohen, neither did Rabbi Whitmore, it was just a non-issue. It was something that just was not addressed. So, so um, it was, because it, it is something that, that is, Chabad is very passionate about and very strong about. And um, Chabad is very strong in many parts of the world. So it's often thought that that has become the establishment. 
So Jews believe that Mashiach is, you know, is one of the big three mitzvahs in the world. And truth be told is that, you know, if you go to Yeshiva for, I, mean, I was only in Yeshiva for six years, but, you know, I can tell you that people have been in for much longer and that Mashiach, it's not a matter that we didn't go to Yeshiva, they just weren't available. You know, you go look on, you go to my, the, the website of my Yeshiva, you go to the Gush website, there's a, a, it's called Virtual Bait Medrash, thousands and thousands of articles. You go to Yeshiva University, hundreds of thousands of articles, and you type in Mashiach, you're going to be very disappointed to find that there's very little on the topic. Yes, sir? Rabbi, um, I mean, it's clear that we're not living in messianic times with that utopian vision of what's supposed to happen when the Mashiach comes. So how, I mean, how does anybody claim that the Rebbe is the Mashiach in this generation? How's, I mean, what is the, the belief behind it when it's so obvious to anybody living in these times that we know we're close to that idea? So, how does he get, I mean, surely you... Okay, so you're asking me to at best be devil's advocate, you know. I mean, I can't give you a, an answer because it's not something I believe. Yeah. But, um, but what, what do they believe? When it's so obvious to everybody else that, that clearly the Mashiach is like, you know, or what's supposed to happen when the Mashiach arrives, you know, we're close to that. Well, I, I think in, in many of these cases, so for example, so let's look at Zionism for a second. So how does Zionism, so one of the things that the Gemara comes and says is that you'll know that the Mashiach is not far away when, you know, when the desert starts blooming. So, oh, you go look in the Negev, and you go look at a country that has nothing, and so, oh, Mashiach, Mashiach. So, so it's not a matter that the, the Rebbe is, in his lifetime, was the Mashiach in a sense that he had fulfilled all that the Mashiach was, as much as it was, he's going to be the Mashiach. He's, he's doing everything he needs to do, and he's on the trajectory to be crowned with the mantle of Mashiach. We're not there yet, meaning that this isn't Messianic times, but the Messianic, but the messianic character um, is or will become, and that's who it will be. So, we don't take it literally, or they don't take it literally, obviously. In what sense? They cannot take it literally that the Rebbe is the Mashiach. What? Because we're not close to that. But also, why do they say, men, if, as you say, at the end of every talk, may Mashiach come now? Yeah. Is he already? So, so no, again, I, I'm not saying that, um, mm-hmm. that he has fulfilled. Uh, and again, any Mashiach, I'm talking about this, is that it's in the... Pr- that, so Shabtai Tzvi was going to be the Mashiach. He's, he's the guy, so let's say, let's just call Mashiach, let's use a, a, a very crude analogy. So he's the captain that is going to win us the World Cup. So we're not at the World Cup yet. It's in still training, pre-games, first round, second round, whatever the case might be. But this is the captain who's going to win us the World Cup. So yeah, now the World Cup hasn't yet come. You know, the World Cup will come in the, whenever it comes. But when it comes, he's going to be the captain. And that is what the Mashiach is. So you're right. They say, listen, he's won all the games he's needed to win so far. You know, granted, we've only been in the qualifying stages, and so we qualified so far. But I'm telling you, this, I believe that this is a captain who's going to win us the World Cup. So you're right. You're saying, but hold on, what has he done? He's gotten us first through the first round, and the first round is no big kunz. I mean, look at, you know, we still, we've, we've only played, you know, we've played New Zealand and Fiji. So, you know, you know so, we, so yeah, 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 but we'll get there. We'll get there. So we'll get there. So, um, and that's where it comes down to. It's, it's much more the, the anticipation of what will be. Has this claim become stronger since his death? I don't know. Seems like it. I, I don't know because I would not have known what it was like before his death. Um, so I, I, I mean, I've, I've read um, two biographies that came out last year, which were written from within. Um, I've read a number of biographies from you know the outside looking in. Um, one of the things that uh, that seems to be quite evident is that the messianism is far greater than most people think it is. That many people think that it is actually uh, relegated to a small sect or fringe groups within the Lubavitch community, and that is not true. It is far far more prolific, and it is much more amongst the groups that say it loud and proud, and those who keep it much more in house. Um, but is it greater in his passing than it was in his life? Um, that I don't know. That I don't know. So, the, the whole talk about Messianic age and all, all I'm about, it's in the same sort of thing. Um, 
Maybe the Masonic age isn't in this world. Maybe the Messiah comes in the next world, but he could be here. He's just not there. Um, See, one of the big challenges that arose when the 13 principles of faith, according to the Rambam, were codified, not by the Rambam, but were codified, okay, so there's Animah memes, these 13 Animah memes, is created a certain dogma around Judaism which it didn't appear to have throughout, you know, the, the vast majority of our history. Is that the idea that there were cardinal beliefs that you had to hold by to consider yourself part of the Jewish community, and very specific dogmas. So the Rambam himself is very hard to understand. You know, like, like I, I had a discussion with someone recently um, who you know is uh, of a different philosophical outlook about um, uh, resurrection of the dead, and um, the question was, they asked me, do you believe in resurrection of the dead? So I said, well, yes. And they said, oh, yeah. So, like, so I, said, I said, but I don't know what it means. I mean, I believe in this concept called resurrection of the dead. But does resurrection of the dead mean we'll go to Macquarie Park and we're going to see people digging themselves out of their graves? So I said, I find it very, very difficult to believe. I mean, that that's what's going to happen. Um, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Now, I know that Hashem knows what he's talking about. I just don't know if I know what Hashem's talking about. And for me to think in, in childish terms, and I, and, I, and I said this and I didn't like the way I said that, the childish terms of resurrection of the dead, as it sounds, that there are literally people going to be zombies coming out from the dead. Like, I mean, I, I said, just practically look at it. I said, let's, let's not even get into the philosophies. I said, you stand in Macquarie. So there's these bones that have been decomposing for 50 years are somehow going to reconstitute themselves. I said, and then this person is going to dig themselves out. Are they going to be banging on their coffins? We have to dig them out or they dig themselves out? And they come out, they're going to be dirty. They've been in there for 50 years. I mean, like I said, like just practically tell me what you see. What possibly? But the difference between me and this person is they had a vision that, that it is absolutely going to happen. And I said, I agree. I just have no idea what that looks like. And the difference between me and you is you think you know what it looks like. I admit I don't know what it looks like. So I believe in Olam Abba, but you're asking me, what does Olam Abba look like? I have no idea what Olam Abba looks like. I just know that there's a concept called Olam Abba. And you ask me all these concepts. I, I believe in them in a sense that I believe the concept exists. But if you ask me to envisage it, I can't envisage it. Do I believe in Mashiach? Yes. Do I know what Mashiach looks like? No. Because, like, listen, we, we've all gone on a holiday before to a place that we've never been. And we have a vision of what the place is going to look like. And when we get there, it doesn't look like anything that we thought it was going to look like. So what do you think? Olam Abba is going to look what you think it looks like. I guarantee it doesn't look anything like you think it's going to look like. Why, why, why even bother? Okay, why well, you should be performing mitzvot now so that you can make life better for people. Well, now. well, yes, yes, and yes. Firstly, the reason you should do mitzvot is because they're mitzvot. End of story. Yeah. You know, Hashem says, do this, do it. End of story. Now, you want to say, well, I want to earn brownie points. All right, because hate you want to earn brownie points. Not the most mature way to do mitzvot, but if that's what's going to motivate you to do the right thing, so do the right thing. So you do it. So say, but what do brownie points look like? So I don't know what brownie points look like. So when I get up into Shemaim and I knock on the pearly gates and I say, hey, listen, I'd like to cash in my chips, please. So I don't know what that looks like. Now, I understand that Hashem knows what it looks like and I understand that, that the concept that there's reward and punishment. So when I get there, I'll be rewarded. But I, I don't know what reward looks like. So, so is it going to be a very physical reward? So like Allah, you know, 70 virgins. Or is it going to be a very spiritual reward that I'm going to be floating on a cloud in Shemaim? I, I don't know. All I know is that apparently I'm going to be able to cash in my chips. And that that is better than not having chips to cash in. That's all I know. So great. Now what does it look like? I see, I, I, I might be unique in the sense that I don't really care. Like, I mean, I don't mean to sound so careless. Like, I don't, I don't, like, I trust Hashem. And that Hashem will, you know, he'll, he'll, he'll do right by me. You know, like, so when I get there, whatever he means, you know, he means. And that when Mashiach will come, Mashiach will come. And I need to do what I need to do. And this is what we spoke about in that lecture with Rabbi. I said, I'm not interested in Mashiach. My job is to do mitzvot. You know why? Not because it will bring Mashiach. Because Hashem said to keep kosher. Hashem said to keep Shabbos. That's why I keep Shabbos. 
Will I bring Mashiach, not bring Mashiach? That's not my problem. Mashiach is not my problem. It's Hashem's problem. So I need to do what I need to do, and Hashem needs to do what Hashem needs to do. And my problem is doing mitzvot, being a mensch, and trying to change the world. That's what I need to do. If Hashem wants to bring Mashiach, He'll bring Mashiach. If He doesn't want to bring Mashiach, He won't bring Mashiach. Olam I don't know. It doesn't bother me. It really doesn't bother me. Well, just because his impact was so significant, and that's why, you know, it's like... It was the big debate of the time, and 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 pop, no, while he was alive, while he was alive, became the great debate within European Jewry about whether this guy was legit or not, and and the popular opinion was that he was. That's the, that's, that's the uniqueness of Shabbat Tzvi. It wasn't the fact that there was a fringe group, 10% Jews were saying the guy's Mashiach. We say, ah, 10% Meshuganers. It's 70% of the Jewish community believed it was Mashiach. And the 30% were in the minority. Krebs, would be, Krebs couldn't, couldn't, couldn't come to Shul because his whole Shul was made up of Shabbat Tzvi supporters. So when did he become the false Messiah? I mean, by definition... So, de- definite, so, so when he converted to Islam, the majority saw the folly of their ways. But not all. Okay, so as I said, generations later, there were still people who held on. I mean, go, go, go You know, do a little bit of research on the topic. You'll see the. the I've, got, I've got some lectures on it. If you know, it is it's unbelievable how people hold on. You know, it's if the 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 formative studies in cognitive dissonance. I don't know if people are familiar with the, the concept, but cognitive dissonance. So the formative study which um, illustrated the point, was actually in, in something very similar. And the idea being that it was a cult, that um, the cult leader said that on a particular day, um, aliens were going to come and destroy the world. And only the members of this cult, they would go up to a particular mountain, that the aliens would come and rescue them before they destroyed the world. And so the study was, what would happen when the aliens don't come? What would be the response of the cult leader and her followers as a, as a female leader and the, the theories were that the cult uh, the cult followers would would go stronger in their belief when the when the prof- prophecy did not come to fruition rather than weaker that was the theory and that's exactly and that's what happened and and what she comes to show and um, it is um, the, the exact study but it is the formative study in cognitive uh, uh, cognitive dissonance was that the more somebody invested in the faith, the more they stand to, to, stood to lose, and therefore the more difficult it would be to convince them. So what happened is the aliens didn't come, and now the cult leader was on top of the hill with all her followers, and uh, and she said it is because of our prayer that we saved the world, and the aliens did not destroy it. And those who had made relatively minor sacrifices to be part of the cult became disillusioned and left. And those who had made major sacrifices were convinced even stronger. Yeah, the, only the real Messiah would deny his messianism. This is a life of Brian. Yeah, is that the more people are, are, are sold. So if you've sold up shop, you've left your little uh, shop in Vilna, you've, give, you've kissed your everybody goodbye, you are going to Israel to make Aliyah because of Shabtai Tzvi, and he's the Mashiach, one, and now you get to Turkey and you hear the bad news. So what are your options? So that, that's where cognitive dissonance comes in. It's, 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 it's phenom- it's, it's, cognitive dissonance is one of the most fascinating areas of psychological study because illogical decisions are made by very logical, rational people. All right, ladies and gents, um, wish you all a pleasant evening. Um,